Welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched, with Teresa Peschel. Our first episode from Peschel Press of our uh, podcast series in which uh, myself, Bill Peschel, will be talking with my wife and co-author, Teresa Peschel. That's me. About murder movies, mystery movies, in, in particular, because we're in the middle of this project, we're doing Agatha Christie movies. We have uh, watched a number of them already, but it wasn't until after about movie number 135 that I thought, hey, why not take our knowledge and put it in a podcast form? So here we are today, working this out in front of you, dear audience, working this out live, so please don't be surprised by the number of flubs and failures and missteps that we make, because we're doing this on the fly. Absolutely. So we're going to start, we just saw a movie last night, so we're going to talk about it. It's the uh, Murder on the Orient Express, and as you know, this is going to be one of the, the, the big, big movies that we've been talking about. It's the one everyone knows, starring Alfred Molina. That's right, folks. It's Doc Ock. That's who you remember is is Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. He only made one Hercule. He only made one Agatha Christie movie, and it is this one. And he does make a pretty credible uh, Hercule Poirot. And this is the one that came out in two thousand and one. It was a made-for-TV movie. Uh, it appeared on CBS Television in America. And I must admit, you know, I was leading into, and I was expecting this to be a dog of a movie, to be honest. We've already seen the others, but we're going to be discussing them, too. Uh, especially when, uh, you know, not only is it starring Alfred Molina, who I didn't, haven't really seen much, and there's only nine people involved in committing the murder instead of 12. And we watched it last night. So, Teresa, what do you think? It was much better than it had any right to be, considering how it was uh, rewritten, including dragging, dredging Vera Rusikoff up out of the, uh, the the depths of the Poirot lexicon, dragging her up so that Poirot could have a love interest at the beginning and at the end, therefore setting CBS up for a, a lucrative movie series if it if it worked out well. The um, it was interesting. It was much better than it should have been. They did a lot of good things in updating it to 2001. Um, uh, one of the examples is actually talking about Poirot riding on the Orient Express. And why and, he did it. And why he did it. Because he was offered a free train trip by a friend of his that would be um, Monjour Bouc, who is a... Uh, uh, Who's a director of the company. Yeah, a director of the company. And Monsieur Bouc offered him the chance to ride on the Orient Express instead of getting in one of the cattle cars in the sky, which we now call airplanes, but really what they are is cattle cars in the sky. So Poirot, being the man that he is, appreciates luxury transportation with fine dining, and he has time, so why shouldn't he take a ride on the Orient Express, which is why you're on a train in 2001. I must admit, though, that, that his his Poirot is not going to remind people very much of David Suchet. No, he is very different. Um, for starter, I, I would say, actually, that Alfred Molina would remind you more of Peter Ustinov in that he is so much bigger than uh, David Suchet. He's got to be six inches taller and uh, at least 50 pounds heavier. Uh, the mustache isn't nearly as... Uh, exuberant. Exuberant. <laughs> you know, just an ordinary mustache. And he isn't... The costumer did not make him immaculate. Uh, his tie was askew in the opening scenes, and he was just wearing a basic 
business suit, or even worse, a sport jacket and pants. They did not match. There was no waistcoat. They're the boring neckties. And one scene, you were seeing his lavender socks. That's when he's interviewing, um, I think, I can't remember now, but yes, the lavender socks were extremely noticeable. Uh, I'm sure I'm remembering this correctly because I was just fixing <laughs> on those lavender socks. And what's interesting, if, as an interesting comparison with Peter Ustinov and um, uh, Alfred Molina, is Peter Ustinov wanted, I think, to be very well-dressed. And whether he was his movies were set in the 1930s or they were set in the 1980s, he was the best-dressed person on screen. Not a hair out of place, immaculate, very formally dressed, whereas Alfred Molina, uh, in his version of Poirot, he was not quite casual. He wasn't casual Friday, but he was heading in that direction. Yeah. Now, this movie also is a, is, it's a historical now, because, of course, we're talking about 22 years ago, so we're seeing all these references. This is one of the, one of the difficulties of updating a movie, is that anything you do to update it automatically dates it. It becomes a historical whether you want it to or not. And so a 2001 movie is now a historical. There's references to Ross Perot, O.J. Simpson, uh, videotapes. The Internet was just starting. So there's so... It, oh, it, and cell phones, baby cell phones. They were still the folding kind, but they, they, they had progressed from the giant bricks to the folding phones. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, like I say, and the, and they updated the characters as well because uh, let's see who who was it? Foscarelli was Foscarelli was now an Italian fitness. Um, uh, he was persona. Steve. He was Steve Armstrong's personal trainer. So, um, many of the characters are still who you would expect them to be. Uh, you still get uh, the Armstrongs. That was the family that was devastated by uh, Ratchet's uh, kidnapping of Daisy. Steve Armstrong. Steve Armstrong is now a software engineer, software designer. Oh, he was like a Steve. Was he Steve Jobs like? Think of him as being like uh, uh, Steve Jobs. Um, Sonia Armstrong, his wife, was a socialite and on museum boards, and Daisy was, of course, a cute three-year-old. So, since Steve is now a uh, a software person, and his wife Sonia was uh, uh, a socialite and on museum boards in L.A., everybody else changes to match that. So, uh, Sonia's mother is still an actress, but she is a soap opera actress, you know, second tier. She's a minor celebrity, as she tells Poirot. I'm a minor celebrity. I have been on TV, too, mm -hmm. so don't think you can intimidate me. She's played by Meredith Baxter, who played on Family Ties. She was the mother on Family Ties. And, and she had fun with this role, you could tell. The uh, Leslie Curran is uh, Sonia's godmother, and instead of being a Russian princess, she is now the widow of a South American dictator, um, Senora Nina Alvarado. Yes, the um, um, you have uh, Helena von Strauss, who is Sonia's sister. Uh, Bob Arbuthnot turns into Steve's partner and a software guru. And he has his own, uh, uh. He has his own company. Yeah, his own company, his own operating system. Uh, William McQueen is still there. And as before, he is, he knows Sonia very well. He is the, one of her co-workers at the museum board. Uh, Tony Foscarelli turns into Steve's personal trainer. The, uh, Philip von Strauss is, of course, Daisy's brother-in-law. Then um, Mary Debenham becomes Daisy's tutor. 
Daisy's uh, live-in tutor. Uh, Pierre Michel, Pierre Michel is still the train conductor on board the Orient Express, and he is still the father of Daisy's French nursemaid, the one who committed suicide. Uh, you lose three characters, but they were very minor. I think it was the cook, uh, who was, uh, uh, Princess Dragomirov's, uh, lady's maid. You lose, um, uh, somebody in the household who becomes the missionary, and you lose the, um, Oh, I'm blanking out completely. I can't remember. But anyway, you lost several of the minor characters. But all of the major characters were revamped to fit 2001. But apart from that, though, it looks like that the movie followed the beats of the previous adaptations. You still had the various clues being parceled out. Yes, it did. It it um, followed much more closely than you would expect. And having seen some of the really fast and loose adaptations of Agatha, they actually did follow the script. And they even went in, because of course they're updating to 2001, they added in references to Poirot that he lives in a world in which characters can comment to him about, oh my god, you did such a fabulous job solving the Roger Ackroyd murder. And how did you know about the strychnine poisoning at Styles? How did you come to understand that? And of course, the um, Mrs. Hubbard herself, as a third-tier actress is acting in a Salt Lake City dinner theater production of The Mousetrap. Mm -hmm. Now, what did you find that you didn't like about it? I thought dragging in Vera Rusikoff was... It, it does fit within the canon, but at the same time it was really stupid because they wasted 10 minutes of precious screen time that they could have devoted to more time on board the train. And it was a love story, too. Well, it was always a love story. Vera Rusikoff in the canon is um, Poirot's Irene Adler. You know, the woman that fascinates him, the woman who has uh, um, no moral character whatsoever, uh, what's in it for me, and yet he, she fascinates him, and he's, he's wary but intrigued. And so you do see Vera Rusikoff, particularly in the David Suchet's, you see her showing up periodically, not always played by the same actress. And I think the reason why they did this is because, hey, you have to have a love interest in Hollywood, right? And it let them do a, uh, a staging device. So you have the introduction of Poirot where he's solving the murder in Vera's CD Istanbul nightclub and then discussing their relationship. And he's like, you're a thief, and I solve murders. Yep. I don't think so. She comes on to him, and he rejects her. Yes, exactly. And so you see Poirot in his element, doing the Poirot, solving the mystery, and de demonstrating his moral courage and uh, moral fiber. No, I cannot align, align myself with a, uh, a thief and a... Um, Owner of a seedy nightclub <laughs> with, with unappetizing people that I'd like to put into prison. Yes, exactly. And then Vera shows up at the very end, and you almost get the sensation that it is a setup for more movies in which Poirot solves crimes and Vera is off in the wings, uh, you know, waiting to uh, lure him into a crime or something like that. Yeah, because it's uh, the movie is over. They're on this. They're on the platform in Belgrade. Everybody's going their separate ways, and she comes out of nowhere as if she had been riding in steerage on the train <laughs> <laughs> instead of in first class, where you would expect Vera Rusikoff to be. But what this, I think, was supposed to, also supposed to do was to set up Poirot's moral fiber. 
because it's in the end of Orient Express, and there will be spoilers galore, so, you, so uh, you know, please don't get your nippers in a twist about that. Um, you can turn us off and go read the book, and then turn us back on again. The, uh, but this is to demonstrate Poirot's uh, moral fiber that he rejects Vera's offer of, of the thief and the cop should get together. No, I don't think so. And the ending of Orient Express is supposed to be a moral choice for Poirot because he's very much against murder. He's very much against vigilante justice. And here he is faced with a truly evil man who kidnapped and murdered a little girl and got away with it scot-free. And, and destroyed so many and people doing it as well. Lives because he, Daisy died. as He murdered Daisy. Her father, Steve, shot himself because he was so overwhelmed with the grief. And apparently he shot himself after his, after Daisy was, they discovered Daisy's body. And then his wife miscarried in like her eighth month. She was very pregnant. The baby died and she died. And it was just one damn thing after another. And he shot himself. And the then, nursemaid died. And then the well. nursemaid committed suicide because of the overwhelming stress from the police. Because as a foreigner in California, of course she had to be the murderer. So, Poirot is looking at a man, the death of a man who has actually caused, directly or indirectly, the deaths of four other people. And he did it for money because he's a snake. He's that kind of a person. So who does Poirot come out in favor of? Does he insist that justice be done? And, you know, as a good Catholic, that the criminals be punished, that this gang of murderers uh, be brought to trial and be brought to justice, or does he choose a different solution, one that technically fits all of the facts, and lets these nine people get off scot-free? And we didn't see any kind of wrestling over this, because mm -hmm. it could be considered justifiable. He could say, well, um, Cassetti slash Ratchet got off, he was tried and, and found innocent, through even through a technicality, so you could say that the justice had tried and failed. And, and failed. And it was up to them to exact the justice of their own. But there's no discussion of this. No wrestling whatsoever. The only intimation you get that justice matters to Poirot is in his initial speech, speech to Vera Rusikov in the CD nightclub in Istanbul. That I'm on the side of the law. That's the only, that's the only, uh, reference that you get. And again, if we had spent less time with Avira, and that would have allowed for a few more minutes at the summing up in the bar car on the Orient Express where they could say, I have to struggle with this. The truth matters very much to me. I want to see criminals brought to justice. I want to see that justice is done. And he had to... These people did murder Ratchet. It was carefully planned. Uh, Ratchet was drugged, and then he was stabbed by each of the nine people, sometimes more than once. The And doesn't that matter? And Poirot should wrestle with this, and this Poirot did not. The script failed Alfred Molina. Yeah, because if you look at the Kenneth Branagh version, for, for all its faults, they did go into that. I think I think they did that more than the um, Albert Finney version, too, did it? I can't remember. 
I can't remember, but there was a lot of things I didn't like about the Albert Finney version. I mean, I loved the all-star casting. What a great, fabulous, incredible cast. Absolutely wonderful travelogue. Really enjoyed it. And, and let me also point out that um, this movie cut corners in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that they cut corners was that they had the Orient Express traveling in the summer. And so, uh, and that is because avalanches are cheaper than snow. So they had a rock slide <laughs> so they had a blocking rock the train slide rather than a you know, huge amount of snow. And you could also tell it was cheap because they kept the, the curtains down in the cars. So you didn't have to do to green screen traveling countryside and nobody was moving as if they were on a train. These were rocks. This was this a suspension was on this. Solid. This is a luxury I, travels, right? This, this was an amazingly <laughs> solid train. And having actually been on trains, let me tell you, they shake, rattle and roll. Yep. And the noise is net is constant. Oh, and those walls, the, the walls separating one compartment from the next, they must have been made out of tissue paper. <laughs> and I can't believe that they would be that thin because, of course, you're going to have your passengers complain, and this is supposed to be luxury travel, and I just can't believe it. Well, and I think, I don't know how, um, I guess it's another point to bring up is just how lighthearted this is. This is like a Murder, She Wrote episode. It was surprisingly funny. We laughed. There are some great scenes in there, particularly with Meredith Baxter as Caroline Hubbard. She was funny, and uh, she, she was describing her what 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 the TV show she was on, and that she was not a star. She was what a, a recurring character. She was a recurring character, <laughs> and she why was she in uh, Istanbul? Because she was going to be in a movie. Uh, a Samson and Delilah movie in which she was going to play the evil high priestess until the director got changed and the producer decided that his boyfriend was going to be the new high priest. Even though he'd never been in movies before, she made she stressed that point. That's right. Even though he'd never been in a movie before, but I guess he must have given a stellar performance in the producer's bedroom, and that's why he was going to be on screen. And she decided she was going to be at least one thing in her life was going to be a top tier movie star, and so she was going to travel on the glamorous Orient Express, and that's why she was there. And you can't intimidate me, Mister. <laughs> and then at the end, and this is a really, I've never seen this before, except uh, I think at the end of Animal House, as a matter of fact, you know, after the solution is gone and, and Poirot is done, he recounts what, what happened to everyone. What happens That's to right. everybody afterwards. That's right. And so Mrs. Hubbard goes off to do dinner theater in Salt Lake City and playing the mousetrap. And, and uh, you know, every, everybody on the train got a little tidbit. Um, including uh, Mary Debenham and Bob Arbuthnot marrying. And that was interesting, too. Every time Bob Arbuthnot came on screen, um, if if Poirot had been harassing Mary, uh, he, he was vociferous in his defense. And again, this is one of those things that was a subtle point, and, but it should have been brought out for the audience that Poirot noticed that Bob Arbuthnot might as well have been waving a sign around that said "mine." Anytime he came, anytime Mary came up in the conversation, even when she didn't come up in the conversation, oh my God, you, why are you being so disrespectful to this woman? Da 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 da. He's the only man who did that, and he might as well have been saying "mine, mine, mine," hands off, mine. Yeah, and this is a very uh, psychological trick that Poirot, I think, is deliberately playing, but it wasn't really brought out. Yeah, he was goading Bob Arbuthnot into uh, revealing more of himself than uh, otherwise. To. And and that was something, actually, that 
uh, overall, the script, I think, did well because you saw, you saw Poirot questioning people and picking up on the discrepancies between what one person said and what another person said, like, can Samuel Ratchet speak French? And William McQueen said, no, Ratchet can't speak any languages whatsoever, but uh, Pierre Michael, the conductor, said, oh, he spoke to me in French. Well, if he couldn't speak any languages, he wouldn't have spoken to the conductor in French. So somebody here is lying. And is it going to be Steve McQueen? Or, sorry, not Steve McQueen, William Wait. McQueen? Or is it going to be the conductor? Which one of them is lying? But you know one of them is. Or one of them is mistaken. There is a, there is a discrepancy here. Mm -hmm. And there were other things like that. Uh, there's also the discrepancy where uh, somebody saw the mysterious conductor going down the darkened passageway and mentioned it's okay to say he looks like he's balding. Because in dim light, you can kind of tell if a man has hair or not. You can say that he's short or tall. You cannot say that he has beady eyes, because you are not going to be able to tell in the dark. Yeah. This, let this be a, a lesson to you, folks, that uh, if you're describing, uh, particularly if you're lying about uh, uh, what you're saying to the police, don't be overly descriptive. You're going to make, you're going to get wrong. Right. All right. So now we come to the end of the episode. So let me ask you, should people watch this? Yes. Yes, I would say that you should give this a try. It is much better than it has any right to be. It is uh, funny in spots, actually funny. And um, I've seen too many movies now to necessarily laugh, but I laughed. We both laughed. Mm -hmm. And there are some really excellent moments, particularly with Meredith Baxter. She had a great time, and she really um, got out the knives and uh, worked on Poirot because she wasn't taking none of his French shit. And <laughs> Belgian beer, Belgian, as I like to say. I know, but it, it, I don't think you would want to watch this over and over. But it's absolutely worth watching this twice, or uh, absolutely worth watching this once, and then comparing it to the other three Orient Express movies and to see what they bring out. And they packed an awful lot into one hour and four minutes. Yeah. If it was one hour and 40 minutes, it may have been a little bit less than that. But they packed a lot into this. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. And I enjoyed I, it. Far more than I anticipated it to be. And, yeah, we had, a, we had a really good time there. Well, so we've come to the end. We've been 25 minutes, almost 25 minutes. And I want to thank you very much for listening, if you have. And I hope you come back the next time. Thanks so much. And remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to special at specialpress.com. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on Murder, She Watched. <laughs> Agatha Christie, She Watched is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel. Produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.